We speak sometimes of an army that has lost its will to fight. The success of the enemy or the hardship of circumstances destroy the army's morale until the passion for victory is overwhelmed by a desire to simply stop fighting. We speak of an athletic team that has lost its will to win. The team falls behind its opponent and the desire to win is inoculated by the despair of inevitable defeat. We speak of those who have lost the will to live. We might hear this of, say, a cancer patient who concedes a long, hard battle against disease. We may hear this in reference to a very old woman who just grows tired of living any longer. Or in reference to perhaps a teen who becomes overwhelmed by the difficulties of life and considers suicide. Whatever the circumstances, the will to live is drained away by despair. When an army, an athletic team, a cancer patient looks into the future and sees no possibility of victory over the enemy, when the last glimmer of hope for success fades away, the will to keep on fighting evaporates. The struggle simply becomes pointless. The will concedes defeat against insurmountable odds. The will must be fed by hope. The will must be fed by hope, or it will shrivel and die. This is true not only for armies and athletic teams and cancer patients, this is true for those of us who know Christ as our Savior in our Christian walk and in our fight against sin. If a child of God loses sight of eternity, if your hope in heaven fades, you will lose the will to fight sin and Satan. There is little fear, I, I don't think there's any fear that any Christian today would completely forget or outright deny that there is a heaven. But practically speaking, we lose sight of it, don't we? Practically speaking, it's not difficult for us to lose focus on the reality of the resurrection. And when we lose sight of the reality of resurrection, we lose the will to fight against sin. This was Paul's concern for the Corinthian believers in some respects. Some were denying the resurrection of the dead and were thus failing to live by faith in the hope of future victory over death. And whether they realized it or not, the looming specter of death's final victory was sapping their will to engage the spiritual battle. This is fuel for the spiritual soldier, the hope in resurrection. So in 15.29 and following, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 29, Paul continues his defense of the reality of final bodily resurrection. His argument, you remember, started in verse 12 as he addresses some false teachers that have influence over some of the Corinthian believers. Verse 12, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Having reminded the Corinthians of the resurrection, uh, well, let's uh, go to the other one we'll wait on. That's all right. <laughs> That's all right. I need the switch up here, don't I? Let's, let's just hang on for a little bit. Having reminded the Corinthians of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which was essential to the gospel message by which they had been saved, Paul takes up the argument that there is a resurrection of the body. Do you remember this? 
if there is no resurrection of the dead, verses 13 through 19, and as you see displayed here for you, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then everything that Paul preached, everything that was part of their salvation, is emptied of any meaning. It is all lost. And so in the one column here, you see what he preached, the experience of the Corinthians, Christ risen, Paul's preaching, their regenerate reception, and Paul's apostolic authority and the other apostles as they proclaim the truth, all of that falls apart if there is no resurrection of the dead, verses 13 to 19. But, verses 20 to 28, there is a resurrection. We are united with Christ. So just as we all die in Adam, so we will all be risen from the dead in Christ. We will all participate in His resurrection. God's sovereign plan is to totally defeat death. That was verses 20 through 28. You remember last week as we walked our way through this section God's sovereign plan is to defeat death entirely. What was the first fruits? What was the start of the defeat of death? It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What, the, what is the next stage? Historically, the next position in the defeat of death will be the resurrection of the body of believers at Christ's coming. And then, there is more to do. I believe that through the millennial kingdom, Christ will put down every enemy. And at the end of the millennial kingdom, there will be no death. Death will be entirely defeated. It will be the death of death as Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. <coughs> as the lost are separated from the saved finally. And as Christ turns over the kingdom to the Father. There is a process there is a plan in place, and the sovereign God of the universe will win the victory over sin and death. Paul argues along these lines throughout this section and claims that there is a resurrection. Now, at verse 29, Paul continues his argumentation. And by all rights, we should have considered verses 29 to 34 last week. It would have been good if we had done that because it just fits right in with his argumentation in 13 through 19 and 20 through 28. We could tag this right along as he continues to argue logically for the resurrection of the dead. I saved these six verses for today and separated them because in, in an interpretive sense we run into a buzzsaw here in these six verses. These are very difficult verses to tackle. Look at what they say, verse 29, Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? <coughs> if the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts at Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. At first blush, you might almost think Paul lost his way here. That he has somehow really lost track of what he's talking about or what he's saying. This is really a tough section of Scripture. Baptisms for the dead? What is that about? Fighting wild beasts? And then there's this 
jolt from this proverbial statement which seems to fly out of nowhere at verse 33. Bad company corrupts good character. Seems to not fit anything that he's saying. And on and on it goes. The passage is going to take us a little time to work through. And I know for some this might be something of a challenge, but let's work through it and realize that all Scripture is given for a reason. In fact, I was reminded by one commentator as I went through here, kind of a little hint uh, and aside, most preachers skip this section. <laughs> so that, that didn't give me a whole lot of courage. Uh, and, and on it goes as we face some difficult issues here. But I don't think we should skip this section. I think that there is a very important point, and I believe you will go home with one very significant principle from this passage, if you'll help me by working through this a little bit here today. Having laid out the implications, if one rejects the doctrine of resurrection, you, some are saying there's no resurrection of the dead. Here is the implications, Paul says. Here's what you have to consider. It makes absolutely no sense. Now, he's, he's laid that out. Having proven logically that there will be a resurrection, Paul now turns to Christian experience to logically prove the resurrection of the dead. And he does so here, I believe, along two lines. First of all, in verse 29, Christian baptism assumes the resurrection of the dead. Christian baptism assumes that the dead rise. Verse 29, we find this phrase, first of all, now if there is no resurrection, that is just tying back into the meaning, now, literally it just reads the word otherwise, but that's the point, is it's tying back to verse 13. If there is no resurrection, now verse 29, he could just as well say that again, if there is no re resurrection, here are the implications. I've walked you through the logical implications. Now let's consider a few implications from the Christian experience. What will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? One commentator call, uh, called this perhaps the hardest verse in the New Testament. A recent article in the leading theological journal claims that there are 200 distinct interpretations of this verse. 200 uh, most would couple some of those together and come and break it down to about 40 options. That's really helping us here, isn't it? So you'll, you'll excuse me if I say I have no idea what Paul is saying. I'm in very good company. But let me offer, as I always try to do, at least to tell you what I think today about what he's saying here. And I think there are some good reasons to hold to at least one of two positions. Now, first, let me say I'm going to dismiss the multitude of options that try to take this figuratively. They say Paul's not talking about real baptism. He's talking about some other type of baptism. You lop off about 120 right there of those 200 options. Because The reason I, I think that is because everyone that seems to develop it figuratively seems to play fast and loose with what the words actually say. They have to play with words and make them say what they really don't say. So I think we're dealing here with actual baptism, and we'll just take the words literally. I also reject those interpretations, and I say that very lightly. I reject at this point, because this is a tough issue. But I, I would set aside those uh, interpretations that say that we're dealing here with martyrdom. There's many interpretations that say these are being baptized for martyrs. 
The reason I'm not convinced with that is that I don't see significant evidence in the historical record that we have this constant string of martyrs at this stage in the church's history. So, if that's assumed, two options I do think come to the top. And I'm going to land on the second, but I think the first is very possible, and that's simply just to read this exactly the way it's said. There are people being baptized in behalf of dead people. Now that creates some tremendous challenges to us theologically, but that's the straightforward reading of the text and would be the predominant uh, interpretation. Now, taking that view, let me support it just briefly, we can say Paul does not commend them. He just says those who are baptized for the dead. He doesn't say we who are baptized for the dead. And secondly, Paul is known at places to take an argument from what someone else is doing without necessarily supporting it himself. And that's very possible here. The problem with the view that people are being baptized for the dead is the fact that we have no historical evidence of this ever happening. Not until centuries later, when Chrysostom refers to this practice among the Marcionite heretics, and we have this still being practiced among the Mormons today, but we have no evidence from any uh, theologically astute or anything close to Orthodox group that ever practiced baptisms for the dead. I have a difficulty here, even though I know it's possible, but I have a difficulty thinking Paul would make an argument from something he disagrees with and say absolutely nothing about it. That's why I struggle with this. I think it's the straightforward, best interpretation on the face of things to just take it for what it is. They were being baptized for dead people for whatever reason. But again, I struggle a little bit to think that Paul wouldn't say something about that. My point is this. Has he made a good case? He has hit a home run 500 feet over dead center, if I can use that analogy, he has, he has drilled the issue, there is a resurrection. In verses 20 through 28, why would he then appeal to some false practice on their part and use that as his final support for resurrection? So there's my struggle. What does that lead me with? You've, you see it here uh, before you on the overhead, but I think we could take it this way. What will those do who are baptized? In other words, all we change is the punctuation. Remember, the punctuation is not part of the original text. I'm always a little leery when we do that. Uh, it's not my first option, but it's possible here that we have a punctuation matter. So we could read it. What will those do who are baptized? It is for corpses. And we supply that word. It is for corpses. If corpses are not raised at all, why are people baptized for corpses? Now, I translated corpses here because that is how the word dead would have hit the Greek reader. Paul's talking here about bodies. Bodies that die are going to be resurrected. So if corpses are, what, I mean, what will they do who are baptized? If we put the question mark there, it makes sense. As Paul is speaking not of baptism in behalf of deceased people, but he's speaking of baptism for one's own corpse. Those who are being baptized as new believers are identifying with the death and the resurrection of Christ, right? We would all say that. We identify with the death and the resurrection of Christ in baptism. So Paul may be saying, why identify with the resurrection of Christ in baptism if the body will never be raised? Baptism makes no sense. You are simply washing a corpse. 
Now, one support for this view is that this is the same kind of Greek construction that we find in Romans 8.34. None of us has problem understanding how to read Romans 8.34, which reads in the Greek, he, who is he that condemns Christ that died? Now, we would never put the punctuation at who is he that condemns Christ. We realize there's an ending thought there. Who is he that condemns? And we supply the words, it is Christ that died. We have the same construction here in 1 Corinthians 15, so it's possible that we have this understanding. You'll note the paraphrase here. What good will be accomplished by those who are baptized? They are being baptized for a corpse, if in fact the bodies will never be raised from the dead. Why would anyone want to be baptized for a corpse? Why are you identifying with the resurrection of Jesus Christ in baptism if you're not going to rise from the dead? Now, all that aside, if you lost me on the track somewhere there, come back to the track here. It really is the good thing about this is we don't have any problem catching the gist, do we? What is Paul saying? It's clear, whatever the, the specifics He's saying your baptismal practices, whether they're for dead people or for the individual, and the individual's essentially dead and will not rise again, whatever the case, your baptismal practices are meaningless unless there is a resurrection of the body. That's clear that that's what he's saying. So whatever uh, the meaning, he points them to the inconsistency of their baptismal practices denying the resurrection of the body. Their own experience proved them wrong. And I, whatever it says to the Corinthians, I think it certainly says to us, it's a good reminder to us, that when we come to a time of baptism, we observe a baptism in our church, or you come to a place where you are baptized, if you've not been baptized at this point in your Christian walk, when we do so, we are doing so as a prophecy of the resurrection of the body. We are saying as we go down into the water that I have died with Christ to sin. But as we come up out of the water, we are also saying I live in Christ now and I will live with Him for eternity. There is a future prospect even in our baptism that points us to the resurrection of Christ. All of these logical implications Paul lays out, Christ rose from the dead. But look even at your own experience. You were baptized, identifying with his death and identifying with his resurrection. You will live again. There's a resurrection of the body. Even your own experience confirms it. Now let me turn to my experience, Paul says. We see Christian baptism that assumes the resurrection of the dead. We notice secondly here, Christian suffering assumes resurrection of the dead. Verse 30. <coughs> And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 30, as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? As for us, that this is now Paul's experience, and he uses a figure of speech here, which simply means I die all the time. Uh, I endanger myself all the time, every hour. It's the same thing as what he says in Romans 8.36. For your sake we face death all day long. And he just reiterates that point here in verse 31. He's not saying anything different. He says, I die every day. I mean that, brothers. I die every day. It's a simple reiteration. It's a figure of speech which means I am in danger of death every day of my life. He's talking here about physical death in the context. He's not introducing some other type of idea 
But he's saying, I am in constant peril as I preach the gospel in Ephesus, and he's writing this epistle from Ephesus. So I die daily. In other words, I am given over to death every day. Obviously, he's not dying literally every day, but figuratively speaking, he is on death's door all the time at Ephesus. Verse 31, the second part of the verse then, he says, Just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that's a psychological insertion there. He's working on the Corinthians to consider his apostolic authority. He's up to something here as he says that. But putting it just into simple words that we can keep going, he's saying, I'm excited about your salvation, for I was the apostle that brought the gospel to you. But just as excited as I am about your salvation, as real as is my rejoicing in you as my spiritual children, in like manner, I am just as earnest in saying that I face death every day. There's great passion in Paul's heart for these believers But there is great passion in his statement here saying, I am suffering every day. Every day I face death. I could make a wrong turn, quote unquote. I could get lost, and it would mean my life. That's my situation. So just as surely as I glory over you, I am giving myself to death every day. In that context, verse 32 begins to make a little more sense. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained if the dead are not raised? (coughs) All right, major problem number two, what are the wild beasts? I believe here that Paul is speaking figuratively. Now, we always take it literally unless there's reason not to but I think there's strong reasons to take Paul's meaning literally. Let me see if I can uh, encourage you along those lines. First of all, Rome did sometimes throw men into an arena with wild beasts in order to punish them and to entertain spectators. But what do we know about Paul and Rome? Paul is a Roman citizen. It is highly improbable that Paul would have ever been subjected to such torture as a Roman citizen. There are, there are some rare occasions where it happened, where the emperor just looked the other way, but it would have been highly unlikely that a Roman citizen at this time would have ever been thrown into the arena. Point number two, it is also improbable that he would have lived to tell about it. Paul was not trained as a gladiator. There were gladiators that were trained to fight wild beasts in the arena, and they generally won. Paul's not trained that way, and for him to survive this would be unlikely. That's not a complete point. Uh, uh, that's not a, it doesn't close the case, but it is a thought. Number three, stating his apostolic credentials, Paul con- compares himself with the other apostles. And I'd like you to turn to 2 Corinthians 11. In 2 Corinthians 11, and I'm reading this for more than one reason, not just to prove the figurative meaning of wild beasts here, but also to prove another point further down the road. So let's concentrate carefully. You can come, uh, just step aside off the road here for a moment. Let's think about what Paul endured. Let's think about what this man went through in his struggles for the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23. Are they servants of Christ, these other apostles? I am out of my mind to talk like this, but I am more. 
I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent night, a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst. I have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches." And you can read other passages such as this, 1 Corinthians 4, 11, 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9, uh, 2 Corinthians 6, where Paul lays out all of the struggles that he faced. But let me ask you this, to come back to the point, did he really fight wild, wild beasts? I think we'd have to acknowledge this is a fairly comprehensive list. It seems highly unlikely that if Paul had been put in an arena with wild beasts, and lived to tell about it, that he would not have told about it here. That's not conclusive, but it really seems unusual. He's not just sketching a few things. He pretty much lays out all of the suffering that he's faced. There's nothing here about wild beasts. Let me take you one more point, and that is, this is the helpful study of historical context. Talking about fighting wild beasts was a common figure of speech about fighting difficult people. And uh, Ignatius in the early church, as he was writing to the Roman uh, believers, said something very similar, which I think we pick up on. He said this, From Syria even unto Rome I fight with wild beasts, by land and sea, by night and by day. Now, most people would not take that as literal, that by land and sea, Ignatius is fighting wild beasts. But notice what he says next. Being bound amidst ten lepers. Le- leopards, the animals. I'm bound to ten leopards. And then he explains what he means, even a company of soldiers. So here's an example of an early church leader that uses wild beasts as an example of Roman soldiers that he is combating, or or, uh, that he's tied to in his imprisonment. Putting all of that together, we have to say there's some strong reasons why uh, Paul should be taken figuratively here as fighting opponents. Nowhere does he ever describe fighting wild beasts. And in Acts 19, we have some long discussion about his travails in Ephesus which would have come after this period of time, but there's never a description of fighting wild beasts, and there's many reasons to believe that he didn't actually do so. Now, if you're not with me on that, that is not a hill to die on. If he fought wild beasts, praise God. And if he didn't get it in his list of sufferings for reasons completely unknown, that's not going to change anything here. But I would... would, uh, suggest in 2 Corinthians 1 that we have, let me go first to 1 Corinthians 16, because very much in this context, he speaks of some of his opposition, and I would suggest that this is the wild beast that he's figuratively describing. Chapter 16 and verse 9, because a great door of effectual work is open to me, and there are many who oppose me. 
That may be what he has in mind. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8, 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 8, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. That's where Ephesus is. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises (coughs) the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that that He will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Uh, There is no particular reference here in any of this to wild beasts, but there are many struggles that he faces. So whatever you take that as, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. He says here, if according to man I fought wild beasts in Ephesus. That's a literal reading. And here we can come back again, and I told you this is an interpretive buzzsaw, but let's look back away from the buzzsaw here, and this we do know. If I endured the attack of wild beasts, laboring in the flesh like any ordinary man, what benefit have I gained? If there is no resurrection of the body, then all the suffering and the danger which Paul was subjected to in the flesh every day for Christ was useless. That's the whole idea here in this section. And here we have something to take home with us. It's a tough section. But if there is no resurrection of the body, earthly struggles are meaningless. Now, Paul says, all the enthusiasm that I have for you as believers, I have all of that same passion in my heart for the trials that I'm facing in the flesh. I am motivated and I am energized by these trials. Paul didn't like suffering, but he knew what was happening. And he had hope. He truly believed that this life was temporary that the struggle against sin was temporary. He believed in the future death of death and the final defeat of sin. He never lost the will to fight and strive for Christ because he had hope in the future. If he had no hope in the future, he would have despaired of the struggle. He would have lost the fight, the will to fight for Christ. So he says in verse 32, the only conclusion would be then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If I have no hope in the resurrection, why would I endure these beatings, these sleepless nights, these difficulties of those who oppose me, these wild beasts in Ephesus? Why would I endure all of this if there was no resurrection of the body? If it's just this life and done, then turn the lights out, eat, drink, and be merry, for we die soon. What a fool I have been to suffer like I've suffered if there's no resurrection of the dead. Your own baptism points to the resurrection of the dead, and my sufferings necessitate the resurrection of the dead. Where do I get this this blazing hope and this courageous desire? I know this isn't it. I know there is a life to come. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 4, as he put it later to the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 16. (coughs) 2 Corinthians 4, 16. 
Therefore, we do not lose heart. Remember the list? If there is anybody that could have lost heart, it had to be Paul. Shipwreck and hunger and sleepless nights and all of this trial. He didn't lose heart. Though, he says, verse 16, outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I would suggest that, among some other things, that is really at the heart and one of the pillars of Paul's heart. He saw the eternal. And all of the suffering and all of the difficulty paled in comparison with the eternal. So what happens to us when we lose sight of the victory? When we lose sight of the potential of the future, and in fact what will be realized in the future, why endure the rigors of church life? Why go through all that we go through if it's just this life? Pamper the flesh. Make the body feel good. Because you just have a few days and you die and you're gone. Why endure the rigors of church life? Why sacrifice time and effort and money for the cause of God? Why battle disease with joy and hope? Why endure the pain of difficult memories with hope? Why pour out your life day after day for the cause of Christ and eternal priorities? There's one answer, because there's a resurrection of the dead. There is looming in the future a victory over this physical world tainted with sin and corrupt and dying. There is a final defeat of death. Sin will be destroyed. Your body and spirit will be united in perfection in the presence of Christ. You will have perfect health, sinless perfection, immeasurable wealth, and unimaginable reward for everything that you've done for Christ. Live today as if that tomorrow is real.